Christina Lamb, it's brilliant to have you on 20 Questions with. I've followed your career since we were first on stage together at the Oxford Literary Festival in the magnificent Sheldonian. I- I'm just curious to start by asking you what it's actually like being a war reporter, being a war correspondent. Goodness. Uh... <laughs> Well, first of all, I don't like really being referred to as a war correspondent. I'm a foreign correspondent. It's just unfortunate that there's too many wars going on and they don't ever seem to end. So I keep going back to places and I wish they would all get sorted out and there wouldn't be any wars and I could report on other things. But so you that have, doesn't really answer your question. It, it doesn't quite, because you you <laughs> have, in the process of being a foreign correspondent, reported on wars in Afghanistan, you've, you've reported on war in Libya, you've reported on Angola, you've reported on Syria. I mean, you've done the most ex- extraordinary war reporting. Yeah, and this year, of course, Ukraine, which, you know, never imagined that we'd be reporting on a war in Europe. But what is it like? I mean, I—I I mean, first of all, I—I I don't like war, right? I hate war. I don't think it resolves anything. Um, I think it's scary being in the midst of people shooting at each other. It's unpredictable, and so actually, what intrigues me about it is how people live in that situation, because. When we look at war reports on TV, you know, you just see the sort of the people being shot at and the sort of uh, the main things that are happening. But actually, at the same time, you've got millions of people in those countries still trying to live, right? You've got people having children, getting married, sending their kids to school, going to work, even as all these wars are going on. And I think we often forget that. I mean, in Ukraine at the moment, there are still millions of people trying to carry on their lives in Syria, which has been going on for 11 years, in Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, Libya, all these places, there's still people trying to live as normally as possible. And that's what fascinates me. How do you do that when and all hell is going on around you. And perhaps we could talk about it a bit more, but to me, it's uh, mostly the women that have to keep all of that together. How do people keep going when all that is going on around them? Well, I think, I mean, it's interesting because people often say to me, don't you get depressed with what you do because you go to bad places and cover bad people. But in a strange way, it gives you some kind of faith in humanity because in those bad places, you see people doing amazing things. And you also see how people are more resilient than you think, you know, that you quickly get used to bad situations. We saw this a bit with COVID, you know, at the beginning, it was sort of terrifying going out because you thought you could catch it. And, you know, just people walked past you, if you touched something, all of that sort of, you know, the COVID swerve. But after a while, we forgot, right? We just started, you know, getting on with things. And that's the same in wars that people, you go to Ukraine and the air raid sirens are going off all the time. People are just ignoring and carrying on doing whatever they were doing. It's hard for you as a foreign correspondent who does cover wars to ignore what's going on because you're actively seeking out sometimes the hot spots, the danger spots when hell is erupting all around you. What's that bit like and how much does it vary from one war scenario to another? Hmm. I mean, it, it varies quite a lot. 
because I've been in wars where it's small militias that are attacking and are very unpredictable than wars with big armies fighting against each other. I mean, what we're seeing in Ukraine with, uh, you know, tanks and fighter jets and missiles is very different to some of the other wars I've covered, which is much more kind of guerrilla fighting and much more shooting and ambushes. And so it, it varies a lot, I think. I'm sure you'll hate to try and answer this question, and I'm sure you don't want to be seen as or thought of as brave. But to me, to someone who hasn't been in the sorts of situations that you've repeatedly either put yourself in or found yourself in, you strike me as an incredibly brave person. What's that I'm like? I'm scared what? of spiders. <laughs> <laughs> but what what is that? Where does that come from? That the, the capacity to put yourself in life threatening scenarios time and again. Where does that come from in you? And and where does fear fit in fit into it? You're scared of spiders, but are you scared of the situations you find yourself in? Of course I'm scared. Anyone that says they're not scared in those situations are either lying or they're mad. I think it's, you know, uh, you would be crazy. And if you weren't scared, you probably would be a liability because you would act in a strange way. I mean, I do find that when I'm in a really dangerous situation and like I've been ambushed by the Taliban or something and I don't think I'm going to get out, that I've become strangely calm Um <laughs> And but I think some people that it does affect them like like that. But yeah, I mean, first of all, most dangerous things I've been in have been things that weren't supposed to be dangerous. So and I suppose that's the nature of war and conflict. that It's unpredictable. But when you're actually going to the front line, you know, you're very aware of what you're going to. You're taking precautions. You're keeping an eye out all the time. You're getting lots of local information. It's when you go down another road and suddenly something unexpected happens and you weren't expecting it uh, uh, then that is much more hard to deal with sometimes you've already mentioned the impact on war and on, on women specifically and I, w- I want to talk about that because you've become a voice for some of these women very prominently but first of all does it ever occur to you that you're a woman in what is often a man's world is ever is that ever part of it does it make a difference do you think to you or to those that you're reporting on that you are a woman Yeah, I mean, you asked, I think these two things connected because you asked me before about the fear. And I think, so I started, I've basically always done this. I started off very young covering conflict. I didn't set out to be a war correspondent, but basically from the age of 22 till now, which is more than 35 years, um, I've been covering conflict. So, you know, you get used to it, you develop an antennae of when things don't seem right and that you should maybe go somewhere else. But also, I think because I've been doing it so long at the beginning, there were very few women when I was doing it. But I didn't really think about that because I was just like focused on what I was covering. And also it was a very different time when there was no internet, there were no mobile phones. So I never saw what I was reporting. You know, it was like I was filing into a black hole, nor did I see what other people were doing to compare. So I was just going off reporting, sending it. I had no idea what anybody else was reporting. And therefore, I think I wasn't very aware that actually it was quite unusual to be at that time to be focusing a lot on women. I think I always did that out of 
I suppose being a woman, I was more interested in what happened to women. And as I said earlier, I think, you know, how you keep life together during a war is more interesting often than the actual fighting. And it always seemed to be the women that was doing that. So it's much more recently that I've become aware that actually women were not being reported on, that their story wasn't being told either in our reporting or in histories of war. And so it's become a more conscious thing recently than it was when I started out. There's infinite nuance here, of course, and we've only got 20 questions, but try to give us a sense of what you've taken away from the way that the women you've reported on in conflicts and women who've been oppressed, not necessarily in a conflict, try to give us a sense of what you've taken away from the way they've reacted to the situations they're in. Well, first of all, I think that they're often the real heroes because the kind of things they do, I mean, Going back to 2016 in Aleppo, when the old city was just being pulverized by the Russians and, you know, it was the women that were keeping life together there and doing things like just scraping any kind of herbs or vegetation and getting flour to make this kind of dried pancake things because there's no food and then pulling window frames down and door frames to set light to to um, keep the the places warm and so you know and I've seen that again and again I mean I've seen women in Afghanistan scraping moss from rocks to feed their children when they had nothing else but there is also this dark side of what happens to women in war, and that is the use of sexual violence or uh, rape. And sadly, that just seems to be happening more and more. We again seen it in Ukraine, but it's happening all over the world. It's difficult to ask some of these questions without sounding slightly crass, because what you've been through is so divorced from the experience of most of the rest of us. But do you develop relationships with or feelings for some of the people that you report on? Because you're a a Sunday Times foreign correspondent. You've been a foreign correspondent for the Financial Times. You've been based in, in different places around the world. You've experienced so many wars, as we've described, that you've got to get you've got to get the facts down. You've got to tell the story. Do you switch on and off between the personal the professional or is it all fused together and some of that then comes out in your writing both your articles and the books that you've written I think I mean because also I go back and forth to the same countries a lot you know particularly Afghanistan where I started out so of course that becomes much more than a story and you know when the Taliban took over last year and it was such a shock and everybody I met when I went just after they'd taken over Every conversation seemed to end in tears because everybody was so traumatized. And I felt very traumatized by it too. Um, And of course, you know, now everybody that you interview pretty much you stay in touch with through WhatsApp. So people often still message me about things that are happening. I mean, I'm still getting messages from people in Afghanistan who are desperate to get out and who under or feel that they're under threat. I think to me, when you get a message from somebody and they say, I've told my story, what difference does it make? And you can't answer that question. That's the hardest thing to me, not the being in under fire or bad places or uncomfortable or with no electricity or food. It's it's that. It's feeling that it, you know, some terrible injustice is happening. You wrote about it, but nothing changes. 
Do you not feel though that some of your work has made a difference? That do you not do you not feel the importance of telling the stories that you tell, the stories of evil, but also the stories of good, the stories of suffering, but also the stories of survival, hope, of resilience? Do you not get a sense that some of that has made an important difference? Well, first of all, you know. I, always try and find positive stories in bad places. Um, like I said earlier, it amazes me that there, you know, always are people. <laughs> um, and and whether it's Malala, right, who I wrote a book with, who fought for education for girls and boys in a really hard situation and almost paid for it with her life, to people like um, meeting a beekeeper in Aleppo who rescued Yazidi girls because he saw in his hives that the queen bee ran his uh, the hives in a very effective way and he's made him start to think about women's rights and why in our society are we not giving any value to what women think and so he ended up actually risking his life to rescue more than 200 Yazidis who'd been taken as sex slaves by Islamic State fighters, which is incredible. So, uh, yeah, so I, I meet some incredibly brave people. You asked me about making a difference. And, I mean, I hope with the work on war rape that I really tried very hard because I was so shocked that what was happening and how widespread it was. And because literally, I mean, as we speak around the world, tens of thousands of women are being raped in conflicts in Ethiopia and Central African Republic and um, detention centers in Belarus in detention centers of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province. It's an epidemic of rape. And yet nobody is being prosecuted. Uh, and the International Criminal Court has only prosecuted two people over the last 22 years, which is absolutely outrageous. So I feel very strongly that I, I try very hard to raise awareness of this and speak about it wherever I can. And I, I hope that makes a difference. But, you know, at one point, I actually thought about giving up this job because I had a year where three bad things happened in short succession. First, I was ambushed by the Taliban in Helmand, completely surrounded, very lucky to escape my life. Then I was on Benazir Bhutto's bus when it was blown up and 150 people were killed. And I was also um, had been in a hotel that was suicide bombed in Pakistan all within the same year. And I think foreign correspondents are often very superstitious. And I felt like my nine lives were had run out. Um, and after Benazir Bhutto's bus was blown up, I came back to London and there was a dinner in London the night I got back in honour of a really brave human rights lawyer from Zimbabwe, another country which I've reported on a lot. And her name is Beatrice Matetwa. And at that dinner, I said to Beatrice, I'm thinking about giving this up because it's dangerous. I'm a mother, but also, you know, I'm putting other people at risk by particularly Zimbabwe. At that time, we were banned every time I went, you know, anyone that spoke to me, I was putting them at risk and nothing changed. So she said to me, look, if people like you stop reporting on what people like me are doing, what's the point of what we're doing? So that made me think, 
okay, there is some value, even if it doesn't seem like it's changing things at the moment, that it is important to report what these brave people are, are doing and hope that eventually things change. How did you find yourself, Christina, in Afghanistan in the 1980s as a young woman, as you intimated earlier, covering the Mujahideen resistance against the Soviet army? And, and what was it like? <laughs> well, it's kind of a long story, but I'll try and say it succinctly. I mean, it all happened because of a wedding. So I had left university, I was interning at the Financial Times, and one day the foreign editor sent me to a lunch of South Asian politicians because he couldn't go. And I sat next to somebody who was the Secretary General of the Pakistan People's Party, which was Benazir Bhutto's party. And he asked me if I'd like to interview her. And of course, I said yes. Um, and she was living in exile in London at the time because Pakistan was under military dictatorship. So I went to interview her and I was very excited and we got on very well. It was like the first big interview I had ever done. And then I got a job at Central TV in Birmingham as a trainee uh, reporter. And one day I came home from work and on my doormat was the most beautiful gold inscribed invitation I had ever seen. And it was to her wedding in Karachi. <laughs> so I'd never been to Pakistan. Of course, I said yes. I'd only recently left university a few months before. I had no money. <laughs> so I'd like to borrow money for the flight. And she arranged for me to stay in her secretary's house so that I didn't have to pay for a hotel. And she invited me to all the events of friends and family, not just the sort of big things. And so I got to know her and her, the people around her very well. But also I was absolutely fascinated because every day after the big ceremonial events, we would come back to her house, which was the house where her father had actually set up the party in the 1970s. And we had these meetings with her political colleagues to discuss how they were going to try and topple the military dictator, General Zia. And they all told me about how they'd been tortured and tear gassed and arrested. And I'd never met anybody, you know, who anything like that had happened to. The most dangerous thing I'd ever done was coming home late at night if I missed the last train. So I was really fascinated. And so I came back to London, gave in my notice at Central TV and uh, announced that I was going to go and live in Pakistan. But when I went to talk to foreign editors about freelancing in Pakistan, nobody was interested. They all said to me, Benazir, well, they all said Jan Wazir has been there for 11 and a half years. Nothing's going to change. And I said, no, but Benazir has gone back. She's going to launch a movement and topple him. And they all just sort of laughed at me. <laughs> and but what a number of foreign editors said was we are interested in Afghanistan because at that time the Russians or Soviet Union forces were in Afghanistan. And it was a war that was really covered by freelancers because it was considered too dangerous for the most part to send staff correspondents. So I said, OK, I will go and live in Peshawar 
and northwest Pakistan and travel into Afghanistan. <laughs> Across the Khyber Pass. <laughs> yeah, this is thing when you're 21, 22 seems quite normal to do. <laughs> um, so I went to live there. I had no idea how what foreign correspondents did, actually. <laughs> and, and I started traveling in and out of Afghanistan with the Mujahideen. And from the moment I first went into Afghanistan, I was completely, I fell in love with it. It just was such a beautiful country. You you go that side near the Khyber Pass across these mountains. And uh, so it was beautiful scenery, but also the fighters were just so, they were so proud and so the way they talked about their history, I mean, most of them were illiterate, but they knew everything from their history and battles that had happened 100 years ago. They talked about as if they had happened last week. Um, and it was a kind of romantic, I mean, from outside, it looked romantic, kind of a David and Goliath battle that you had these Afghans from the mountains in their sort of rope sandals and old Lee Enfield rifles fighting against the Red Army, one of the most powerful armies on earth. Of course, the practice rather like Ukraine today, the Afghan Mujahideen were receiving huge amounts of weapons and money from the outside world, from the United States, from Britain, France, uh, Saudi Arabia. And so they were able to, to turn the war around in the end. And in particular, the Stinger missiles, which were able to start neutralizing the air power so I was there at the time when actually things were turning around and they were driving the Russians out. And so they felt very, you know, upbeat. The morale was very good. How do you cope? How do you deal with loss? So you, you nearly lost your own life, but you've been the witness to the loss of many other lives. People you've come to know, like Benazir Bhutto or total strangers. How, how do you pro begin to process that? So, I mean, when Benazir died, that was really difficult because I'd known her for years. Um, and, you know, after being on the bus with her when it was blown up, I knew that they weren't going to just leave it at that. They would keep trying. And I said to her then, I'm not traveling with you on any anything again. And actually, it, when she died, it was Christmas and I was in Portugal. My husband's Portuguese and we were there with our family. And then I got a call from the paper saying that Benazir has been injured in a rally. She's been shot. And I just knew straight away that she died. Um, it was so difficult because it was like Christmas. So we were in this Christmas village and there were like elves and Santas and people trying to make festive cheer and drinking mulled wine. And it was kind of like a nightmare because there were all these people were really happy and I just was so upset at what happened. And, and yeah, so it's not easy. I mean, the hardest thing is really children, you know, when you see children being killed and also other people's loss you know I meet a lot of people who've just lost a child in a war or something and are grieving and that is is really really hard
Have, have you spoken to people to deal with any trauma that you have experienced through your work? Do you get help? Do you talk to a psychologist or a psychiatrist? Do, do, is, is there a process whereby you, you work it out, what you've witnessed? So things are much better than they used to be. I mean, years ago, nobody talked about PTSD, right? And so, you know, in fact, I had a colleague who was off work for a really long time in the Priory, and we weren't allowed to talk about it. If anybody asked, we had to pretend that that colleague was on holiday, or which, of course, made the rest of us feel that this is something embarrassing that you can't talk about. And I also think that uh, I don't feel like this now, but earlier on as a woman, I felt I had to be braver than the men to show that there was always this question of you as a woman, as a war correspondent. People were waiting for you to sort of show that you were scared. or And so I felt like, you know, it was really hard as a woman to ever admit anything like that. Uh, that's totally changed now. People are much more open about it. There is help if we want it. Actually, I mean, personally, uh, I haven't had any problems. I have a lot of friends and colleagues that have. And I think in a way, because I, when I come back, I tend not to hang out with other war correspondents or reporters. I tend to uh, have friends who do different things. And... Uh, I also, you know, have my own family and a mother. So if I'd been away for a long while somewhere, I'd come back and then immediately being taken, taking my son to football practice or to, you know, um, making him in a Halloween costume or all these things. And in a way, that was quite grounding because it meant you didn't really have a lot of time to to dwell on on things when you came back. When you're in the field, how do you strike the balance between reporting on the detail, but also maintaining a sense of, of the general, of the of the bigger picture? Because what's happening where you're reporting specifically might not necessarily reflect the wider picture. Things obviously have changed as you've developed as a correspondent or as, you, as you've, you've grown and worked as a correspondent because of the internet and because of mobile phones and the, the instantaneous connectivity that we can, although I imagine it's not always the case in some of the places you been but how do you make sure that you're telling giving as accurate reflection as you can not just of what's going on specifically where you are but more generally so that's something I feel quite strongly about because actually I think you need to be very careful to explain to people that you are only reporting on what you can see so um and it might be quite different in other places now of course you know if I'm doing a weekly report on Ukraine and I'm in one place, I've still got to reflect what's happening in in other places to give people a sense. But, you know, mostly I'm concentrating on, on where I am. And I remember during the war in Iraq, I was covering Basra. So I was outside for like the first three weeks or waiting for Basra to fall. I basically kind of lived near a bridge on the outskirts of Basra. So I knew really well what was happening around that bridge and that area. I hadn't a clue what was happening in the rest of Iraq. And actually, it was kind of odd when I came back from the war and then people back home were talking about things that happened during the war. And I had missed that because I was, like, you know, in these, um, I mean, because then also <coughs> we, we had less uh, access to um internet and so we didn't have mobile phones even at that time there so 
Uh, now it's easier to kind of follow what's going on everywhere else. But I still think it's very important that you um, convey to readers that you what you're reporting is where from where you are, not that you have some great knowledge of the rest of the country. Has there been a conflict that's been particularly difficult for you or dangerous for you to cover because of circumstances on the ground? I think, for example, of of Syria. I can imagine that might have been a really terrifying place to be because you were hearing stories of terrible things being done to people from the outside. Yeah, I mean, Syria... The job sort of changed in a way. I've told you how like communications have changed, but it's also become more dangerous. And we became targets in a way that we weren't when I was covering Afghanistan at the beginning. And so that made things very different. And Syria, you know, seeing colleagues, you know, even people you knew being kidnapped and then appearing in those videos, uh, with a knife at their throat was terrifying. So for the first time, you know, it became that there were places that were just too dangerous to go to, to report. And I had never imagined that I would say that. In fact, in the end, I, from 2009 to 13, I went to America to be Washington correspondent, really, because I felt I couldn't do my job in the same way anymore. I couldn't because I'd always been a big believer in, you know, going anywhere. And I didn't really like embedding with the troops. I think it's part of the story, but it's only part. And if you, that's all you can do, then it's very frustrating. So, yeah, so for a while I, I uh, worked in the U.S. In, instead. But I think that, oddly enough, the one conflict that has got to me more in terms of finding it really, really traumatic and is not these really dangerous places it's Zimbabwe Um, and that's because of just going back and forth so many times under Mugabe and reporting on you know basically was the deliberate destruction of a country and and it all just seems so pointless I think it's easier when it's a war even if it's a war that you think is totally wrong but you can see that somebody has a reason for the war but in Zimbabwe Mugabe was just basically it was all about him staying in power that was all it was and he didn't care you know who was killed who lost their homes and jobs in the process and so that that was very hard and it also was hard to cover because it went on for so long and it felt like you were writing the same story in a way over and over again so it became hard to persuade editors to send you and and it was the sort of slow death of a country so you would go into villages and everybody was living on the edge you know people were sort of fading away slowly but it wasn't dramatic like in a Ethiopian famine or something you know so Editors were asking, well, if you're saying that so many people are dying, where are the pictures of, you know, all these dying babies and things? And you couldn't because it was slow death. Um, So that was terribly frustrating. And then, of course, you know, Mugabe goes and then the situation gets even worse. So, um, So that's been hard. Talk to us just a very little bit about your experience of reporting Ukraine. Yeah, so I had never been to Ukraine before. And 
Uh, and so first of all, the good thing from point of view as, of a reporter is that an awful lot of places I've been reporting on over really since 9-11, people have not wanted journalists there and they don't like us. Uh, whereas in Ukraine, the Ukrainians really want the journalists because they know that they need help from outside and they need it reported. So people are incredibly helpful to you. So that's good. Um, and also it has incredible Wi-Fi, which is also good. And I'm used to being in places where communications are often really difficult. So uh, so that's good. And, and and also just seeing the incredible resilience of the, the people and how everybody you know, just got involved in some way or another. If they weren't actually volunteering to fight, they were helping send food to people. They were helping make camouflage clothes and, and setting up checkpoints. And, you know, pretty much everybody seems to be involved in some way. So that was very humbling. It was uh, also incredibly horrific to see some of the things that were happening, and particularly around after the Russians left Butcher and Erpin and outside of Kiev, and then seeing the absolutely horrendous destruction, the death, the rapes of people, um, you know, just the absolute sort of wanton destruction and evil and that was really really hard i mean those places those names are going to be forever associated with the most terrible things just being recognized for what you do given that you're being recognized for covering such horrors and, and misery as well as the positive stories that we've touched on but does being recognized mean something to you, you you're an obe you've won lots and lots of awards as a as a journalist Look, it's always nice if you're sort of recognised by your colleagues for uh, or your peers for your reporting. And I think particularly in the past when it, there weren't many women, and so it felt like, you know, maybe it was encouraging to younger women to see. Um, now that's different. Like this year, the press awards, the lists are pretty much all women, <laughs> just like one man, I think. So that's fantastic change. And so if, you know, you feel that you can sort of, just as, you know, I read about women like Lee Miller and Martha Gellhorn and Virginia Cowles and how they kind of blazed a path for us in the, in the past. It's nice if uh, we female reporters today, older female reporters, have um, managed to... I don't know, inspire, sorry, it sounds a bit arrogant, but like um, make people think that it's possible to, to do this. You reported much closer to home at one point in the pandemic. because you, you, Can you, I you... just say about the OBE? Because I don't really, like, I don't think that I'm not in favour of all these things, but my mum was so proud. <laughs> I knew there was no way I could turn that down because that was like, the best thing ever to go to the palace to see the queen to get that you know was just something like the most special day I think for my mom so I mean it was special to me too but it was something really uh, so I can see that you know lots of people maybe if you come from a family where lots of people have done things then it it's easy to turn down but you know when you just come from a very ordinary background it really means a lot 
what was your background like? What was your childhood like? What you ended up studying, I think, PPE, politics, philosophy, and economics at Oxford. But what was your yeah. what was your childhood like? So I went to state schools. My mum was a lab technician in a, a school. My dad worked in accounts in a company. And uh, so nobody in my family had ever been in higher education. I, my dad left school at 14. And yeah, so it was uh, very special to go to Oxford. And yeah. Did you think you might be a foreign correspondent? Did you think you would be one day covering wars when you were growing up? Did it ever occur to you? I didn't know anything about journalism, right? I never met a journalist. Um, That's why I think it is quite important to go and speak in schools and to talk to people because... I never thought about it because I had never, you know, met anybody doing it. I didn't know anything about journalism. But I always, always loved writing from an early age. I won a prize for a poem on fires when I was like six. <laughs> and so I loved writing poems. So it was very exciting to me to win a prize. And I uh, always wanted to write. I loved writing. So actually, I thought about being a novelist. But my mom was very, you know, you need a proper job. You can't just go and write for a living. So actually, I went to university to study chemistry, not to do PPE, because chemistry you could do a proper job with. (laughs) Unfortunately, we see that PPE at Oxford, most people end up becoming prime ministers and not necessarily very successful (laughs) ones. So it doesn't have a great reputation. But yeah, I, I just wanted to write. I love writing. And that's very helpful because oddly enough, I mean, for a job like this, it I'm always amazed that there's a lot of people in journalism who love reporting but don't really like the writing. And I love both parts of it. I'm very, very curious. So I always want to know what people are doing and why. And so I think it's great that I have a job that gives me an excuse to go and ask anybody anything I want to. But I also really love, I love nothing more than a blank page or screen to start writing. It makes me, I'm excited to start. Just to finish the question I started a little earlier, during the pandemic, you've reported, written about things far closer to home. In fact, in in this country, and homelessness has been at the heart of that. Could you sum that up for us? Difficult to do because you've written a whole book about it. Tell us, tell us the name of the book, and 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 also, and I went to the book launch, but but also why that that story struck you, and how, what we can learn from it, perhaps. So I always like writing books about difficult subjects, but finding a way, and I suppose in the journalism too, finding a way, a story that enables people to be interested in something they might not otherwise be. And so during the pandemic, of course, I couldn't travel being a foreign correspondent. And I ended up reporting on my own country for the first time. And one of the things I reported on was what happened to homeless people and this everyone in scheme to bring rough sleepers off the streets and put them in hotels and actually was very successful. 
project. And so I was writing about that. And then I came across this particular hotel in Shrewsbury called the Prince Rupert Hotel, which was a very different hotel to the ones that I had been reporting on in London, which were mostly budget hotels and bed and breakfast. This was a four-star luxury hotel with four-poster beds with a sort of decanter of sherry on the reception, parts of it 900 years old and like beam ceilings and uh, knights in armor and so I was fascinated and they had taken in more than a hundred homeless people over the year and the owner the manager and the accountant had all left their own homes and moved in to look after them and so it was a sort of story of compassion and how their views of homeless people really changed through their experience so when I went there first to do a story about it and I was it just really got in my head I kept thinking about it and so then I asked them can I come and basically embed in your hotel and live with the homeless people and they said sure so I moved in as well and it was um amazing way of being able to learn about what leads people to end up sleeping on the streets because if I had set out normally to do a book about that I guess I would have gone to shelters and gone on the streets and talked to people and it would have been quite superficial this way I was actually living with them in the hotel uh they couldn't escape me <laughs> and and, and so I really, you know, got to know people very well. Some people didn't want to speak. Some people were very wary because they've not been treated well. But other people loved that somebody was interested to hear their story. And so I ended up writing this book, The Prince Rupert Hotel for the Homeless. And I hope that it, you know, helps people understand why people end up on the streets and maybe think differently about the people that they pass. I was just in London the other day. There are a lot of people back on the streets again, which is very sad. And so I, yeah, I wrote about about that. When you say that some people were less keen to speak or didn't want to speak because they hadn't been treated well, of course, you don't mean by the hotel, you mean prior to yes, reaching by the hotel. public, yeah. And because they felt, you know, they had horrible stories of how people had kicked them, spat at them, thrown things at them. You know, an awful lot of these people had gone through terrible experiences. And so, but it's a complicated issue. They were complicated characters. A lot of people were addicts, uh, drug addicts, alcoholics. The alcoholics and the drug addicts didn't get on. And But a lot of funny things happened too. And like they would post reviews on TripAdvisor about the hotel and complain about the gravy. And the hotel owner would say to the manager who was cooking the biggest armed robber in Shropshire is complaining about your gravy <laughs> it's a heartwarming story and and, and I, I want to finish on a on a happy and positive note because your life is a life of extremes it, it seems to me you're in the most extreme places in the world or, or situations in the world but then you're back in London you're a, you're a mum you're a wife you get on with daily life like the rest of us I want to know what makes you happy what, what a sort of ideal evening is like for Christina Lamb. <laughs> and it might be being abroad, of course. It, it, it might be b- being able to report on some of this awfulness, I don't know. 
Yeah, no, of course. I mean, you wouldn't do it, right? If it wasn't, I mean, I we've talked about the bad things, really, but a lot of it is fun, right? You, I mean, you, the amazing colleagues, crazy things happen in in places. I always remember after Benazir's death, going to Pakistan, and I was so sad, and I thought, how will the country get out of this? And I got into the taxi at Lahore Airport. And of course, we always talk to taxi drivers. <laughs> and, and I said to him, you know, how terrible, what's, how, how will the country get out of this? And he said to me, um, he said, yeah, this is the bad thing about this country is we have no discos. <laughs> and I was thinking that's the one thing that I just never thought was the real issue in Pakistan so there are always crazy things happening you do laugh a lot you make friends with people in places and now you know some of those people keep messaging me about I'm saying to me, I'm sorry about what's happening in your country, which is rather putting the boots on the other foot. But no, I like, of course, being with friends and family, uh, going for walks in beautiful places, uh, going to the theatre. I love music and uh, yeah, just um, things to kind of take you away from some of the bad stuff and I also read an awful lot I read a lot of novels I read poetry and yeah I don't I have to read non-fiction because of the things I'm covering but out for enjoyment I mostly read novels and I always travel with books (laughs) Christina Lamb thank you so much for answering my 20 questions I hope they were 20 questions I may have miscounted (laughs) but that that, was really really interesting to spend that time in in your company again I really appreciate it thank you it's a pleasure thank you (laughs) 